2 Chronicles 33. If there's one uh, unique truth that the Bible demonstrates more than any other history book or any other book that's in history, there's one truth that the Bible communicates and exemplifies. It's the concept of complete life change. Complete life change. Now, the, the examples of this throughout Scripture are, are numerous. You can start with Moses. You can go to Nebuchadnezzar. You can look at Mary Magdalene, Zacchaeus, uh, the demoniac in Galilee. Uh, you can look at Bartimaeus, Paul, the Philippian jailer, and on and on and on it goes. And add to that about complete life change, every single Christian who's ever been saved and redeemed by Jesus Christ. Because I don't know about you, but if I didn't have Christ, my life would not look like this. I would not make the choices I make. I would not have the values I make. I would not have the convictions I make. I would not have the mindset that I have as a redeemed believer in Jesus Christ. So all of us who are saved are, are living examples of complete life change. And that's not just a nice little spiritual concept. It's not just a little pipe dream. It's real. And it is unmistakably personified in so many people who have moved from death to life, who have moved from, from sin to holiness, who've moved from self to, to spirit-led, including all of us who have personally experienced it. And that needs to be something that is, that is coming out every single day out of our mouths, out of our actions, out of our mindset, out of our attitudes. If you are saved, you need to show it. Not as, a, not as proud, not as look at me, not as I'm better than you. May God forbid that we ever have a mindset of I'm better than you because I'm saved. Because I don't know about you, but I didn't do anything for my salvation. Christ did everything. And if we're saved this morning, then, then you probably have an account of exactly when it, where it happened. But some of you don't, and that's fine. That, that's not really the point. The point is, there's a tangible expression of what God has done in your life. Like the blind man in John 9, you may say, you know, you, don't, you, you may not believe what's happened, but I want to tell you, I used to be blind, and now I can see. And that really is what our lives are supposed to be about, that amazing grace that they just sang about, we just sang about. Well, our, our text this morning is another example of a life of two extremes. And this morning, and I want to encourage you to take some notes this morning. The Lord's going to teach us a lot today, I pray. But we're going to study about King Manasseh. King Manasseh. Now, you may not have spent a lot of time digging into his life, and I don't really blame you because, to be honest, the first half of King Manasseh's life is an absolute spiritual disaster. So let's read about it. Second Chronicles 33. We've got some verses to read today. So thank you for remembering your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Somebody will get you a Bible. We'll give it to you as our gift, okay? Anybody not have a Bible, raise your hand, and we'll get you a Bible. Good. Man, 100% Bibles. Let's give ourselves a hand for that one. All right, Manasseh, verse 1 was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had broken down. He also erected altars for the Baals and made Ashram 
and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will be in Jerusalem forever. For he built altars for all the hosts of heaven into the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his sons pass through fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnon, and he practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking God to anger. Then he put up the carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I'll put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, if only they'll observe to do all that I have commanded them according to the law, statutes, and ordinance given through Moses. Thus Manasseh, verse 9, misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the sons of Israel. Now that's quite a list. A lot of the kings that we look at, all the kings of Israel were bad. Most of the kings of Judah were bad. So when you look through Scripture, Kings, Chronicles, you look through those books, you see that a lot of the kings did some of these things. But Manasseh's kind of an overachiever. He decides to do all of them. And Manasseh really, at this point, you have Ahab in Israel, who was probably the most evil king who ever lived. In Judah, Manasseh was the most, king, uh, most evil king of Judah. And this was ironic because Manasseh's dad, Hezekiah, was the king before him. And Hezekiah was probably the most righteous king of Israel. So you've got Hezekiah, who's righteous, reforming the nation, doing the right thing. Then his son comes along, Manasseh, and he turns everything around and does evil beyond pale. And then his son, Amnon, is going to be the second most evil king of, of Judah. So you've got a real problem here. And when you look at what Manasseh did, and if you write in your Bible, just you can write little numbers, maybe one to nine, or you can write these down in your notes. But, but you look at this and you see what happens and what Manasseh does. Let's start in verse 2. He does evil in the sight of the Lord according to what the carnal nations did. Verse 3, he rebuilds the high places that Hezekiah, his dad, had torn down. Verse 3 again, he made altars to Baal and worshipped nature, the sun and the moon, which was common during that time. Verse 4, he builds altars in the house of the Lord, but not to the Lord. He builds them to false gods. And then in verse 6, he really goes nuts. He sacrifices his own sons in fire to those gods, practices witchcraft, idolatry, provokes the Lord to anger. And then in verse 7, he builds an idol in Solomon's temple that God had said is my temple. It's where I, where I exist. And then in verse 9, he misled Judah and Jerusalem and did more evil than all the nations around them. Now you say, well, that's okay, but that's 2,700 years ago. What does that matter to me? Well, first of all, just, just look at everything that Manasseh is doing to try to replace God, to try to say, I don't want God in my life. In fact, I don't need God. God's irrelevant. God doesn't matter. God has no place, and, and we can just get rid of him. Now you say, well, that's, that's Old Testament, Paul. That's really, you know, that's severe stuff. Until you look around culture, and you realize that that's our default. In fact, I was reading a quote this week by one of the most 
forgive me, one of the most annoying and arrogant people in the business world. And I saw this principle on full display. Because Mark Zuckerberg, the founder and CEO of Facebook, said that he wants his social network to fill the role that churches and social clubs once did in communities. During his speech, Zuckerberg said membership in all those kinds of groups has declined in the last several decades, and quote, that's a lot of people who now need to find a sense of purpose and support somewhere else. Of course, he sees it in Facebook. In fact, he sees bringing people closer together to be so important, of course, there's no money involved in this at all, he sees bringing people closer together so important that he says we're going to chase Facebook's whole mission to take this on. Now, he sees the stats. Zuckerberg's not an idiot. He's a smart businessman. And he sees the stats that 36% of millennials say they have no affiliation with any church. Now, our youth at Harbor Rock Tabernacle are going to bring that percentage down. Because we have got to reach the next generation's because the church will die quickly if we don't do something. Zuckerberg sees that there's a need for community that's built into us as human beings by God, but instead of family doing that, instead of the church doing that, instead of saying, you know what, I'll take my billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars and support evangelical churches that are supportive of the family so we can rebuild the culture. Instead of doing that, he says, everybody needs to look at their screen, connect with our site, pay me money, and that's how we'll get along. And that's completely misguided. Now, I think that's where Manasseh was. Manasseh was spiritually empty. He tried to fill the void in his life with as much as he could to defy God and to show control that he thought he had. Now stop there for a minute and let's make it personal. What are the substitutes that you choose instead of following the Lord? They may not be as, as heinous as this. They may not be as outrageous as what Manasseh is doing. But, but honestly, they're causing the same type of spiritual damage to you and to others. And now that the Holy Spirit, I pray, is convicting us of those things, what's our response? See, the people of Judah, they, they weren't naive little pawns. They knew what was going on. But Manasseh's deceiving, and they're following, and they continue like lemmings to follow him off the cliff spiritually. And they're saying, well, this is probably not right, but Manasseh's our leader, so this is what we're going to do. And the prophets come along, and God speaks directly to them. And we don't know from the text whether it was the prophets or whether it was God speaking directly. But God communicates to the people, this is the wrong way to go. And it doesn't stop them. In fact, if you look at the text, it says that they heard the Lord and they paid no attention. That's in verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. When the Holy Spirit speaks to you and me through the Word of God, when the Holy Spirit speaks to you and me through prayer, when the Holy Spirit, and He does this, speaks directly to our hearts and minds, the question is, what is our sensitivity level to Him? 
When God is speaking through his word, and I pray that I'm out of the way this morning, that God, the Holy Spirit, is speaking to each of us, including me, that, that as God speaks to us, what's our sensitivity level? And I think there are four sensitivity levels that we have. Number one is to be deeply sensitive. Hearing the voice of the Lord, studying his word in depth, going before his throne of grace and praying, so aware of the Spirit's leading throughout the day that you're constantly repenting, constantly humbling yourself, constantly praising him, constantly following his leading. That's what it means to be mature and deeply sensitive to the Lord, that you're seeking out his counsel and he's giving it to you. Category two, being somewhat sensitive. Kind of have a little sense of his instruction. You kind of know his leading, but it's not often, and the Lord instructs you but, but your time in the Word is not consistent. Your desire is kind of to know His voice better, but you're really not doing anything to make that happen. Then there's category three. Not very sensitive at all. You hear Him once in a while. A song will touch you. A sermon will kind of, kind of convict you, and you'll kind of get there. But, but really, it, it's pretty rare. Your time in the Lord, uh, in the Word, is, is random. You don't really hear the voice of the Lord. In fact, you're kind of annoyed when people talk about it. It seems a little mystical, maybe a little overrated. God doesn't speak to us. Come on, get real. It doesn't happen that way, Paul. Come on, come on. What are you talking about? That's category three. So there's deeply sensitive, there's somewhat sensitive, there's not very sensitive, and then there's category four. Not at all sensitive, or we might call this insensitive. Not at all sensitive is Manasseh and the people. You don't pay attention to his word. When you hear it, you, you kind of goes in one ear and out the other. It goes over your head, goes under your head. I don't know where it goes, but it doesn't get to your heart. And you hear the words of the Spirit. Sometimes you're very convicted, but you're resistant to his leading. You turn out the word when it's taught. Maybe you don't even want to be around the word when it's taught. You're here because somebody makes you come. I don't know. I don't know each of you personally, but, but it's not important to you. And the only time you really pray is when you have a crisis, and then you beg God for help. Now, if you're in the latter two, not very sensitive or not at all sensitive, what would it take for the Lord to get your attention? What, what will it take in your life? For Manasseh, it was a very direct and painful lesson because God brings the Assyrian army to town. You can see this here. It says, therefore the Lord, verse 11, brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them. They captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I want you to see, first of all, look back at verse 11. The Assyrians were brutal people. I mean, they make most armies look like they're just kind of playing around. They were known, if you do any research, and I don't recommend it around dinner time, they were known for their brutality. They would hack their victims into pieces. They would cut open their stomachs. They would cut off parts of their body. They would flay the skin off their backs. They would impale people alive. They would cut off their hands and feet. 
they would burn children. Now, I'm sorry to be so graphic, but we need to understand what Manasseh is getting into. The reason why Jonah didn't go want to go to Nineveh is because the Ninevehs were the Assyrians. And he said, if I go to Assyria and I start preaching about God, they're going to do what I've heard them do. Now, it's interesting here, and this is the grace of God, that the Assyrians don't take Manasseh and brutally torture him, though they do put a hook through his nose and drag him all the way to Assyria. They bound him in chains, and they treated him poorly, and he's part of, of now this mess. Babylon, at this point in history, is part of the Assyrian Empire because the Assyrian Empire basically covered the whole Fertile Crescent. So, so everybody is now under, under the control of Assyria. And Manasseh goes back. And this is painful, and it's humiliating, and it's a personal and professional failure because the nation of Judah has now been taken down. Their leader is gone. The nation's in limbo. There's nobody really to lead them. They're not listening spiritually, and there's now uncertainty because of how Manasseh has acted before the Lord. You know, there are going to be times in our lives where the Lord sends a very strong and a very clear message designed to get our attention. I can point back to five, six, seven times in my life where I knew that God was saying, Paul, it is time for you to understand the way I work. It is time for you to get in submission to me, and it is time for you to teach me. Now, those times, unfortunately, involve usually personal pain and hardship. Or they involve something that affects people that are close to us, or, or even it can be some sort of public dishonor. And what God is doing during those times is he's sending two types of message. I want you to really hear this. Write it down if you're taking notes. There are two types of message that God's sending. And you've heard this before, but we need to hear it again this morning. Either the message God is sending is that he needs to rebuke our sin, he needs to rebuke our failure, and he needs to confront apathy and weakness in our walk because we have gotten off track. That's type one message. That's you are doing the wrong thing. You need to be essentially spiritually grounded and disciplined because you're off track, your heart's wrong, you're not following me, you're full of pride, and I'm going to give you a difficulty because you've got to get that right in your life. That's message one. Message two is, you need to be refined. Your faith needs to be stronger. You need to go, as I've told people many times in counseling, when they're going through hardship. God wants to take you to the next level of faith. The level of faith you're on is perfectly fine, but God doesn't want us to be stagnant. He wants us to grow and mature and grow and mature. So the faith level that I'm on after 42 years of being saved is not good enough. He wants me at the next level. And when I get to the next level, that's not going to be good enough. He wants me at the next level. Until there is absolute, complete, total, humble dependence on him every single second of the day and nothing of me. That's where God wants me. I'm not there yet. Not even close. 
So God sometimes sends us a message where he says, your faith has to go deeper. Your dependence has to be richer. There has to be a greater depth of love and devotion for me. So I'm going to take you through difficulty. I'm going to give you hardship because I want you to grow. In the same way we discipline our kids and we teach them like, you need to go mow the lawn. You need to weed. I hate weeding, by the way. I weeded my beds. Can I just have a little side here, a little personal? I weeded my beds at the start of summer, and they were pristine, and I was so proud of myself. Pride goes before a fall, right? Full of weeds. <laughs> Embarrassing. It's like I have a second lawn in my beds. Why? Because weeds grow, right? Got to keep pulling them out. Got to keep pulling them out. Got to keep pulling them out. And as Christians, even when we're growing, the weeds will grow. That's no big deal. It's just a couple weeds. I'll get those later, right? You've done this, right? Oh, now there are 10. Whew. Probably they that really busy. I'll get to that later. I'm still good. House looks great. Look at, look at my house. It's beautiful. God sometimes has to bring that refining and say, it's time to do some weeding. And if you're not going to do it, I'll do it for you. It's up to us to discern when we're going through difficulty, which message is it? Is it message one or is it message two? And there's a subtle difference. So the Lord says it's very important when I bring trial, when I allow discipline, when you're going through hardship, really listen now, Holy Spirit help us. When we're going through that, it is vitally important that we do two things right away. The first one is to humble ourselves before the Lord and say, God, Psalm 139, search me and know me and see if there is any wicked way in me and remove it. And then when he answers that prayer, and he will, keep confessing, stay away from sin, continue to walk with the Lord. And God will stretch our faith, even if it's not a, even if we don't think it's a faith-stretching time. God will stretch our faith. He'll develop it. He'll deepen it. So step one is, I've got to humble myself. You say, well, I don't think I deserve discipline right now. That doesn't matter. He's God. You're not. So I don't care if I deserve discipline right now. God is calling me to humble myself before him. Step two is, Lord, I need wisdom and discernment now because I need to know whether there's junk in my heart that you're trying to erase, that I've got to get rid of, that I've got to challenge and confront in my own life as a, as a matter of self-discipline, or, Lord, are you refining my faith? And if so, Lord, explode my faith. Take it to the next level and teach me, Lord, how to trust you. Teach me how to pray. Teach me how to be dependent because, Lord, I just want to be close to you. And that comes out of the humility. Now, for Manasseh, look back at the text for a second. There, there can't be any doubt, right, about what's happening to him. His rebellion, his, his rebellion has been so overt that once the Assyrians take him away and all sense of power and control is stripped away, he knows without a doubt that he's being punished. And as of verse 12, I love this word, it says he's in distress. I would think so. But instead of being defiant, 
instead of being angry at God and blaming him, instead of just being indifferent, which for somebody as evil as him would all be logical, I love what Manasseh does. He does what all of us should do every single day. Look at it. It says he humbled himself greatly before the Lord. What a great action. The Lord brought conviction because this was message one. You are wrong. You better get right. And instead of Manasseh saying, I don't care, he says, Lord, you've convicted me. And I'm humbling myself, and not just because I'm suffering. I'm humbling myself because I understand, and this is one of the hardest and most important things that we can say every day. I understand that I am wrong. Oh, we've got to pray that more often. Every single day, Lord, I'm wrong. And you know what pride says? Pride says you don't have to pray that. You're fine. You don't, what are you wrong about? Listen, I'm wrong about everything. Because I'm a sinner saved by grace. So Manasseh goes before the Lord and he says, I'm wrong. All those fake gods, where are they now? They haven't helped me one bit. And Lord, I'm inadequate. You've shown me. You've proven it. You've taken me to my knees. I need your help. If we could only be fully convinced in our lives that there is no one but the Lord who is able and willing to help us, we would be full of joy. And there are only two things that are going to keep us from that. Pride and a continued love of sin. The only things that will prevent you and me from walking faithfully for the Lord and being full of contentment and full of joy and experiencing God's blessing are pride and love of sin. Now, Manasseh here, look back at it. He's broken of his pride. He accepts that it's right. And now he understands that his sin has brought him to a place of distress. And I'm going to tell you, this is one of the greatest spiritual battles of the mind. Because the enemy tries to convince us that our pride and our sin are non-factors. They have no part in our difficulties. Instead, God or someone else is to blame. And we have to be convinced in our hearts every day that pride and sin are the only reason we have difficulty. They're the only reason. Whether we're being punished or refined, pride and sin are the only reason. Just look back at Genesis 3 and you know that that's true. Then look back at your life. All the times you've had difficulty, all the times God's either disciplined or refined. And I guarantee you that the common denominator is not somebody else's attitude and not somebody else's actions and not circumstances. It is our pride and our sin. Manasseh had to be convinced of that, that he's at fault. Even though the evidence was insurmountable, he could have avoided it. He could have said, no, I don't accept that. But he didn't. He became convinced. And I'm convinced now, look back at the text for a minute, because there's something very important at the end of verse 12. I'm convinced that part of that was because it says he humbled himself before the God of his fathers. I think 
as he's sitting in Assyria with that hook through his nose in chains, all of a sudden he hearkens back to his dad. Hezekiah, the righteous king of Judah, a king who restored temple worship and who, who uh, uh, brought down all the idols and got rid of them and reinstituted the life of, of spiritual reform and said we need to call on the Lord in prayer and called on the Lord in prayer himself. His influence is still in Manasseh's brain, even as he's sitting in Babylon. Never underestimate the influence that you and I can have spiritually on other people. Never underestimate the influence that you are having on your children when you teach them the way to go. Never underestimate the influence that you're having in those difficult conversations with family members who hate God over dinner and you're thinking, I'm not getting anywhere, Lord. I'm praying about this. Why is nothing happening? Listening, it's happening. People who are hostile and resistant toward God just keep talking because while their hearts are hardened now like Manasseh's was to the nth degree he's sitting in Babylon and God confronts him and he humbles himself and he starts to remember all that his dad had taught him and he starts to worship the God of his father and God changes him it says, I love this word, new word I never really saw before. Verse 12, it says that he entreated before the Lord. The word means to be weak, grieved, and sorry. You want to know how you're really humble and sorry before the Lord? It's when you don't try to defend your sin. It's when you don't try to justify, well, God, you didn't know, and, and God, I did this because of that. And No, no, he just says, I'm going to get on my face and I'm going to be weak and grieved and humble before the Lord. And I'm not going to blame anybody else. I'm just going to say, God, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. I am so sorry. You know, when we're out of sorts spiritually, there's nothing better than we can do to humble ourselves and to entreat the Lord with the right attitude and then to say, God, please help me. You're out of sorts spiritually this morning. Doesn't feel right. You're a little bit frustrated with God. You're not on fire. You're dull. Whatever the case, there is nothing better you can do than to humble yourself and treat the Lord and ask Him for help. It's not a formula. This is not manipulation. God's smarter than that. He's not going to be manipulated by somebody, well, Rhodes said, do those three things, and everything will look great, so I'll do those three. Listen, it's not a formula, ABC. This is our heart saying, God, change me. God, cleanse me. God, purify me. Humble me how you need to so I can love you. Now, here's why. Let's end on a great note. Here's why this is so incredibly awesome. When we do this, there is a spiritual principle that should never stop amazing us. Verse 13, when he prayed to God, God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. When Manasseh humbles himself and entreats the Lord 
and he prays. This says that the Lord was moved by it. The Lord heard him, and the Lord restored him. Can we stop for a minute and praise the Lord for that? The Lord, who is holy and perfect and has watched us offend him time and time again, who has watched us be proud and defiant and fall away and resist him. Listen now, this is so important. The Lord, who has watched all of that, who's holy and perfect and does not need us, the Lord is stirred by our humility, and he is pleased when we come to him and say, God, I'm all yours. I'm humble before you. You do what you want. God says, now you're ready. Now I'm going to work, and I'm going to work in ways you cannot imagine. He doesn't just say, oh, it's okay, or, or I'll get over it. It's fine. Instead, look at what he does. He takes someone like Manasseh who had a laundry list of spiritual felonies. We listed nine right at the start. He takes that guy who's in Babylon, who deserves to die, who corrupted a whole nation of people, who led everybody astray. And he not only forgives him, but he stirs the Assyrians to release him after two years. And then, oh, it's not done yet. He restores him to his throne in Jerusalem. You see, there is fruit out of repentance. There is fruit out of repentance. Say that with me. There is fruit out of repentance. And when we repent, God not only makes that fruit grow, but he restores us to places we can't imagine. But listen, here's where spiritual decisions have to be made. Because Manasseh's restoration is a picture of what happens to us when we get saved. Our heart is changed, and it's hard to believe, honestly, it is hard to believe that this is the same guy. In verse 9, five verses before, we see a mess. Now we get to verse 14. Manasseh could have gone back, could have restored his old life, could have hung out with his old buddies could have repeated his old actions. That's what we do when we neglect so great a salvation, when we neglect the new life that God's given us, and we go back to our old life and our old friends and our old habits, and we say, well, it's God, it's great. I'm so glad I'm going to heaven. Yes, sir, but I'm going to live like I used to. Manasseh could have done that, but he didn't. He lived in the change that God had brought about, and he said, I'm not going back to that. I'm going to act to ensure that I honor the Lord by how I live. So look at the aggressive and definitive steps that he takes. Verse 14, after this, he built the outer wall, the city of David, in the valley to the entrance to the fish gate. He encircled the Ophel with it, made it very high. Then he put army commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah, also removed the foreign gods and idols from the house of the Lord that he had put there, as well as all the altars he'd built on the mountains of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. He threw them outside the city. He set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. And he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Look back at verse 9, then look at verse 16. Only the Lord does that. Nevertheless, the people, because they had been conditioned, still sacrificed in the high places, although they only sacrificed to the Lord their God. 
Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, even his prayer to God and the words the seers spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, behold, they're among the records of the kings of Israel. His prayer also and how God was entreated by him and all his sin, his unfaithfulness, and the sites in which he built high places and erected the ashram and carved image before he humbled himself. Behold, they're in the records of Hosea. This is what God does. Manasseh makes a spiritual decision. And as we close, I want to just give you three very quick things that he did that are so important. That we, in our daily life, now need to embrace as the act of humility and treating God. Number one, write these down. Manasseh made sure, he made sure to fortify any weak and unprotected areas. Listen now. He made sure to fortify any weak and unprotected areas. He rebuilds the wall around Jerusalem, not only to strengthen the city, but to make sure that they're not vulnerable to any attack by the enemy. And then he puts the army up there as a measure of strength and accountability so he can't change his mind. The spiritual application here writes itself. Identifying what is spiritually weak in our lives, identifying areas that are not submitted to the Lord, identifying areas of immaturity spiritually, getting rid of them because they don't help us anymore, and then strengthening those areas so the enemy can't get a foothold. If we're not doing that right now, that's job one today. And it will not matter if we do number two and number three if we don't do number one. So fortify the weak areas. Strengthen them. Number two, Manasseh removed old altars and built new ones. This is so important. We're going to do a deeper study on altars down the road, but for now, let's just define altars as the place in Scripture where people sacrificed to the Lord and they worshipped Him wholeheartedly and they indicated their full dependence on Him. See, the problem is here that Manasseh had put up so many altars to Baal and foreign gods, just like we have little altars and little Baals in our own life that we continue to hold on to and continue to have a little place. But in order to truly worship and serve the Lord, which Manasseh knew he needed to do, you have got to tear down the old and rebuild with the new. That's what indicates that we're serious about it. And we have to look at every place in our life every single day and say, how am I going to consecrate that to the Lord? How am I going to make that more holy? How am I going to sanctify that to God? It's like cleaning your house, right? You can clean all the surfaces, do the dishes, vacuum the rugs, dust the walls. But, but then you're looking in the bathroom and you look in the corner and you see little bits of dust. And you kind of go, ooh, that's kind of nasty. But you know what? My counters are clean. And if people come over, they're probably not going to go in the bathroom and look in the corner and go, have you seen this? That's nasty. Like, like seriously, get a rag or something. But my counters are clean. Did you see my Did you see my weeds? They're all gone. Yeah, I don't care about the weeds right now because I'm right here and that's nasty. Not clean unless it's pure, right? Not clean unless it's pure. We do a lot of wiping the counter spiritually. We don't do a lot of deep cleaning. 
And we better start deep cleaning and building some altars and saying, God, what do I need to consecrate to you? The word consecration means holiness, not just doing better, not just, all right, Paul, I'll go home. Now, now I'm really freaked out about my bathroom. Better go home this afternoon, get a little swab, do that out, thinking of Paul the whole time, angry at Paul that I'm having to clean my bathroom today. we got to build altars that replace the ones that we're tearing down. Number three, last, thank you for listening so well. Manasseh praised the Lord openly, and he influenced others spiritually. His gratitude to God was so full and so rich. How in the world did he get away from the Assyrians? Two years later, he comes back, and God doesn't say, all right, enough of you. I got you out, but you're not going to be king again. No, he's king, and he's one of the longest tenured kings in Israel's history. Fifty-five years, God restores him, and he says, I'm going to put you back in place, but this time, you're going to do it right. And Manasseh says, praise your name. Praise your name. And you know what? This is not just going to be for me. Tell you what, Judah, here's what we're going to do now. I know I led you wrong before, but I'm going to lead you right now. It is never too late to institute that reform in our lives and to say, look at what God's done. Praise his name. I want you to know it too. That's exactly what he does. Listen, you and I, if you look back at verses 1 and 9, we're all that corrupt. My heart, which got saved in 1974, my heart was as dirty and corrupt as Manasseh's was. But how many know that God is so amazingly gracious? He's so amazingly gracious. And he can take what was dirty and filthy and nasty, and he doesn't just wipe the surfaces. He washes us completely, completely clean. Praise his name.